This episode is made possible by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, working to build a more healthy, just, and inclusive future for everyone at czi.org. This episode contains sensitive language that might not be suitable for children. Now to Australia, where they're facing those massive fires, already among the worst in that country's history. It's been a historic day at the U.S. Capitol, the first public hearing in the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. Breaking news tonight, the deadliest day yet of the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. Over 200 dead in 24 hours. 2020 has been exhausting. Hospitals are running out of space, and first responders are running out of supplies. First, we got hit with a pandemic that's already killed more than 100,000 Americans. Black and brown communities across the country being hit harder, in greater numbers, and with fewer resources to save them. Then came a video of a white police officer kneeling on the neck of a black man for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. That man, George Floyd, died. Now we're in the biggest protest movement in a generation, with tens of thousands of people marching day and night in more than 150 cities and in all 50 states. Overnight, growing outrage in Minneapolis over the death of a black man in police custody. No peace! Hundreds marching in Chicago, in Atlanta, officers in And by the way, there's a presidential election just around the corner. Last three months are any indication it will be unlike anything we can imagine. President Trump versus former Vice President Joe Biden facing off during a global pandemic. America is on edge. Attention, attention, attention. In this episode, we talk to protesters about why and what makes this moment so different. This is America Interrupted. I'm Yamisha Sandor. How you doing, Dan? Hey, Yamisha, how are you? As well as can be expected. I know. That's my colleague, reporter Daniel Bush. We've both been reporting on the protests. So, Dan, you've been in Minneapolis. What's it like there? What did you see? I was on the ground for several days with some colleagues, Yamisha, and it was a city that was in total chaos. All of Minneapolis was boarded up. There were three different neighborhoods where many of the buildings were just burned to the ground. Roadblocks everywhere and people out in force on the streets day and night and a lot of anger. So it was tense. What about D.C.? What was that like? I've never seen the city in this state before. I go to the White House every single day and now it just looks like a war zone. Tanks, police in riot gear, protesters everywhere. Sometimes I I literally forget that I'm in D.C. and I think that I'm in another city because it's just so unrecognizable. Walking towards the, I guess we're going to the White House. That's Janetta Elsie. She goes by Netta. I talked with her at a protest in D.C. earlier this week. And why are you continuing to walk? Just the people. Like, you go where the people go, and I just want to be a witness to whatever's going to happen tonight. I first met Netta in Ferguson in 2014. She, like a lot of people, had taken to the streets after Michael Brown was shot dead. He was an 18-year-old black man killed by a white police officer. When you look at these people, what do you see in front of you? Uh, I see young people, really. There's a lot of young kids out here, like 17, 18, 19. You have people who are energized and very fed up with the current state of events in the world, feel hopeless about their own futures. 
I don't imagine what that's like at 17. Uh, I wasn't that young when America broke my heart. So, how old were you when America broke your heart? <laughs> Probably 24. When one of my close friends was killed by police in St. Louis, 2014, a few months before Mike was killed. Um, and his name was Stefan Avery Hart. That's when America broke my heart. How often do you still think about him when you're like out here? Oh, every time, all every day. I'll go anywhere to tell the people, tell the world what happened to my friend. What does it feel like to now be back seeing these protests and these mass movements? Well, you know, I was kind of expecting this. Um, not kind of, definitely. Um, and here we are again. All of these things have accumulated between um, black people being disproportionately killed and affected by coronavirus to we're still dealing with police violence at the same time. I'm tired, right? But at the same time, I'm still black. And these both of these issues are still affecting me personally, my family and my friends. So um, to me, it just seems like, of course, that this is all happening um, on both sides of political parties and political lines. Black people are falling beneath or below um, the needs and the wants that these political parties are actually trying to accomplish. I feel like black people are falling through the cracks. So we still have to come out to the streets um, to make our voices heard. Are you hopeful? Are, are you hopeful, hopeful that things can actually change? And what would change look like for you? What would the change that you want to want look like? I'm always hopeful, always optimistic. I do believe we can live in a world where the police don't kill black people at disproportionate rates like this. I feel we can live in a world where police don't kill people at all. There are other countries With Netta, it feels like we're back in Ferguson, walking the streets surrounded by protesters. But it's six years after Ferguson, and we're in Washington, D.C., and talking about the death of another Black man at the hands of police. For so many people, you can just feel how personal this is to them. It's not just something they're seeing on TV. This is their life. In Minneapolis, I met a woman who knew George Floyd from the neighborhood. And after his death, she's just been so angry and in pain and on the front lines protesting with other people. And at one point, she was shot by the police with rubber bullets when she was out there on the street protecting another protester. So when I got in front of him, they just started shooting rubber bullets at me. I got hit in my neck and in my eye. Um, it all happened pretty fast. I tried to help myself as best as I could, but like at that moment, I wasn't really worried about the pain or what was going on with me. I was just trying to de defend people that I care about. I was peacefully protesting. I wasn't even saying anything to, um, to the police officers. I wasn't being hostile. I asked her why protesting in this moment matters to her. Let's just start with the fact that black lives matter. Black lives matter and it's, they're not being heard. Their black voices aren't being heard. And me as a non-black person of color, I'm using my privilege to stand out here and support the people I love and care about because I'm full Puerto Rican. I have family of all shades of brown. I have family my color. I have family way darker than me. I have black siblings. I have black people that I love. I have a mixed child. Like, that is why I'm out here. I fucking love black people. And I'm here to end this shit right now using my voice. You feel me? Like, this shit gotta stop. I've, I've met George Floyd three times. I'm, I would go to the Puerto Rican Bistro on Central, um, La Conga. I went there quite a few times. This man was nothing but nice to me. So it broke my heart seeing someone I have interacted with more than once, twice, like five times. Seeing him on the news like that. See? 
that man get his life taken the way he did, it just sparked some shit in my heart. It's devastating that she feels like she has to put her body on the street so that people will value people that she loves and people that she knows. You can hear the power in her voice when she says Black Lives Matter. She's saying that because she really believes that in her soul and she really wants other people to believe that too. Yeah, and I think we were talking earlier about the heavy-handed police presence, the aggression, the destruction, but you know, at the heart of all this is just the pain, the, the deep, deep pain and anger. And it's so hard to hear um, and to see people having to, to live through it in this moment. And for many people like Rachel and Netta, a big part of this is about grieving people that they knew and loved personally. But I also heard from people who are afraid of the threat of losing someone if things don't change. I met one man, Henry Hunter, who came to the protest with his young son. I'm here, uh, you know, both because of the last 30 years of my life and the next 30 years of his. Um, you know, I've had a lot of experiences, fortunately none like George Floyd, but, you know, it's part of the talk we're going to be having for a while. I think based on my past experiences, uh, without a kid, I would be here angry and I would be here trying to get a, you know, do damage rather than seek solutions. I think with him, I don't have a choice but to. I think it's, you know, obviously he lives in a better world than the one I was born into, and I live in a better world than the one my parents were born into, but he still needs to understand that he's a black dude in America. What are you going to tell him? Uh, all, all the usual things, be respectful, be more deferential than you should be, than you should have to be. Um, be alive instead of right. For people who are struggling to understand what this movement is about, what does that mean? I'm a black man in America, this is my experience. Tell me a little bit about that. I think it's a gift and a curse. Uh, the curse is obvious. People look at you a certain way. You're presumed criminal no matter what you're doing. You know, I actually feel relieved walking around town with a stroller now because I'm less of a threat. At the same time, you know, there's a unique strength and history and legacy that comes with overcoming all of that that people also understand. Tell me a little bit about what do you want to see change? And you said you're realistic, so why do you think it's going to take so long? Change is slow. I mean, you spend 400 years creating an oppressive system, we're not going to get rid of it in 60, 70, 80, 150 years. Um, you know, this didn't start with George Floyd, and sadly there will be a lot more hashtags, but I think that there's progress. I mean, the size of this crowd and the duration of this uh, protest shows that there's incremental progress. At the same time, I grew up in the South, so I'm patient. <laughs> And what do you make of the president? He said that some of the protesters here, that most of them are domestic terrorists, part of some sort of professionally organized domestic terrorist group. We can't handle four more years of Trump. I think we're on the brink of being a failed state, whether you're talking about the economy, the virus, or the racial unrest. I think that his insecurities and weaknesses are obvious, and he projects them. His supporters, you know, according to all the stats, are more likely to be domestic terrorists. Um, his rhetoric is more likely to cause domestic terrorism. And I don't think it's ignorance. I think it's knowing and intentional. Henry's saying what a lot of Black people feel. Their very existence puts them at risk. And they want that to change. And they think it's unfair. And they think that the president isn't helping. I heard that over and over again in Minneapolis 
from black residents there saying that they related to George Floyd. They felt like they knew him, that that could have been them. And then on the other hand, Yamish, you know, you had a lot of white folks, a lot of white people talking to me saying, how do we deal with this moment? We want to be out there protesting. Uh, We want to show our support, but do it in a way that shows they were saying that they are owning their white privilege um, and not drowning out other voices. And it's tough to figure out what that balance is. Yeah. And after I talked to Henry, I saw this white woman holding a sign that said privilege. I wanted to talk to her because so many of my black friends are talking about how many of their white friends are seeing their privilege, texting them and calling them and really, frankly, emotionally stressing them out, looking for advice on what they can do. Obviously, they want to be helpful, but they also are in some ways being a burden to black people. So I wanted to talk to this woman about why she came to the protest. Tell me about your sign. My sign? Oh, um, so... Okay, so it says ignoring politics is a privilege because that's what I personally feel like I have done sometimes because I get mad, but then I just tweet about it and then sit on my couch. And I think after a while, you realize that is a privilege that I have to do that, to sit and not do anything. And it was just, it wasn't sitting well with me anymore, and I wanted to do something and say something and show up, so... So as a white woman, when you stand out here and you're saying Black Lives Matter, what does that feel like for you? It feels like I should have been doing this a long time ago, I'm not going to lie. I'm surprised it took me this long. and I I feel that I don't want to stop. I want to keep doing it because I was silent for so long. I, I would tweet or I would read it and be angry and that was all I would do is just be angry. And if I'm angry, I can't imagine how the Black Lives Matter community feels because I'm livid and... That's, once again, my privilege speaking up, that it took me this long, so. I heard that from a lot of white people this week, that they're having this moment of realization about how unfair things are for Black people in America. But then there are Black people like Taylor Jones, who say they've known all their lives that the system is rigged against them, and they're tired of having to explain it. I fought all of my college career for this, uh, from Freddie Gray to Tamir Rice. I've witnessed all of it. So it's like for it to be 2020 and not 1960, and it's still happening, this is heartbreaking. And nothing's being done, so I'm here. When you say it's 2020 and not 1960, what do you mean by that? What do you want people to have? The system should not be the same. I feel like as we evolve as people, the systems and the laws need to do the same thing. There's no system created for us. The system has never been created for us. We are tired, and it's, I'm at the point where I'm tired of explaining the obvious. It's common sense. It's literally common sense, but I'm not making any of these statistics up. It's in, the proof is in the pudding. It's no way you can go around this. It, it's, what's no ob- one wants to ignore What's obvious anymore. that you're tired of explaining? The police, the people that are sworn to protect and serve should protect and serve all lives. Black lives included, number one. Because we are the ones struggling and still need their help. And these urban communities that are getting gentrified, we don't have nowhere to go. The school systems suck and we are tired. And we're still dying on the hands of the people who are sworn to protect and serve. Not your life, not my life, all lives. It should not matter who we are, what we look like, our background, what our parents did before us, where we wanted to go. It does not matter. If we're alive, we have breath in our body. I should not have to fear leaving my house and not being able to breathe or my mom calling me crying because I'm protesting for my rights because she is scared I won't come back home. That is a fear a parent should never have. 
And it's so hard being black in America. And they continue to ignore us. But we are not going anywhere. They're going to have to learn to live with us. And that's just what it is. Taylor's fed up and so many other people are fed up. People are just tired of their of having to explain their humanity. They are. And I mean, it's just such a part of this, the exhaustion, right? And so many people told us about that, just having the difficulty of going through these experiences over and over and over again. Now, I spoke about that with a black woman in Minneapolis. Her name is Frenchie McGee. She's a reverend who's originally from Mississippi. And because of what she does for a living, she's comforting people every day. And that takes a toll. Professionally, I care for people who are traumatized. And so um, I think as a, as a pastor, I live with trauma all the time. So how I, how I am personally is one thing, how I am professionally is another thing. So I am reflecting, I am grieving. I, I'm also thinking and I'm strategizing. And I am planning and I am crying. So it's, it's not one or the other, it is all of it. What kind of message do you think um, the rest of the country has gotten from watching these protests taking place here in Minneapolis? I think what Minneapolis did was to start the beginning of a very long, very loud existential scream. And in the way that that carries. It resonated at a frequency with people in other communities who probably felt it in their psyche. And they picked up on the screen and it became amplified and it continues to be amplified. But we were already screaming with Georgia. It just wasn't as loud. We were already screaming with Kentucky. It just wasn't as loud. Um, there's a sign across the street that says, you know, 2014, I can't breathe, which is obviously a reference to um, Eric Garner. So we were screaming with New York, and here we are six years later, and Minneapolis is now screaming. And so now the world, I think, um, is, screaming, is screaming with us. You just mentioned all of these other deaths in just the last couple of years. For you personally, is there something different about George Floyd? All of them are senseless in a human sense. Um, I think perhaps what is different about this one is the manner in which it was carried out. I think one of the definitions of insanity is the inability to consider your own self-interest. How does a person in the matter of maybe 15, 20 minutes become so captured by the action of what he was doing that he did not stop to consider his own self-interest. Um, Derek Chauvin not only took the life of George Floyd, he took his own life in so many ways. He may live, but he has lost everything that in some ways probably meant life to him. I've not heard many people try and empathize with Derek Chauvin. How are you able to do that, having watched what he did? One of the things that I believe as a Christian and one of the things that I preach and I teach is that inherent in each human being is a spark of life given to us by our Creator. And so we 
possess that. And even though we may deny it, that the best way for us to actually heal and be a force for good is to look for that. So there's a quote that says, we are not the best of what we've ever done and we are not the worst of what we've ever done. Derek Chauvin is a human being. In the moment, um, in the moment and minutes that he was doing what he was doing, he denied his own humanity. And in denying his own humanity, he resisted the call from George Floyd to grant him his life and preserve his humanity. He resisted the call from the crowd around him to grant and live into his own humanity. He resisted the call of a fellow civil servant, the off-duty firefighter who was there, to live into his humanity. And so I grieve for Derek Chauvin and I pray that he will recover his humanity, even as I grieve for George Floyd and his loss of life. I was just so struck by that. On the one hand, she's talking about grieving for the police officer's inability to, to respect George Floyd as a human being. But then at the same time, on the other hand, she's praying for him in a way, she says, for him to recover his humanity. And the strength in the moment for her to be able to even have that thought was powerful. What, I don't know. What did, what did you think? How did you see what she was talking about? I think that she was saying that she hopes he and people who would feel like it's okay to kneel on a black man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, that they all should recover their humanity, that they should all begin behaving like human beings. And that means seeing other people as human beings, regardless of race, gender, sexual orientation. I think that what she's saying is that this officer was not acting like a human being should act, which is that he should have really had value for George Floyd's life. Netta, the woman I first met in Ferguson six years ago, and so many others told me black people are battling two viruses, the coronavirus and racism. COVID-19 is killing black people at a rate nearly two times higher than their share of the population. And black men and boys are almost two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white men and boys. What really scares people is that there's no end in sight for either. Yes, communities across the country may elect new mayors and police chiefs. Yes, Congress may get new leaders and even pass new legislation. And yes, come the November presidential election, there might be change in the White House that some want. But the real issue is whether America, a country stolen from Native Americans and built on the backs of enslaved Black people, can ever really live up to the promise of every woman and every man being treated equally. A reminder that you can follow all of the NewsHour coverage of coronavirus and the Black Lives Matter protests on our website, pbs.org newshour. This episode was produced by Vika Aronson and Frank Carlson and edited by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Sam Lane, Mike Fritz, Jaywon Cho, Leah Nagy, Wyatt Mays, and Morgan Till for all of the help out in the field. And thanks also to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, and James Williams. 
Our executive producer is Sarah Just. 